When I was a little boy, I grew up in a, a little tiny Baptist church, and I remember it was small, but our pastor used to say the same thing over and over again. He said, when you go out in the world, when people talk to you, and when they ask you what you are, remember three things. Tell them you believe in the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. This morning, we're going to look at why we believe in the blessed hope. It's told us in the book, and you can't understand the book if you have not had the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to be in the book of Daniel this morning, and this morning we're looking at what is the prophetic backbone of everything we believe. As I've been going through this prophecy study with you over the last several months, I've had so many fascinating conversations in the hallways and, and at church fellowships and, and at other things. And I realize there's so many new Christians, there's so many that are coming into studying the Bible, and they say, how do we know that? And where does it say that? And how can we be sure of that, especially since uh, there are so many people that are, are putting out all these different books and ideas and concepts? What is the part that we're sure of? Well, this morning I'd like to share with you the backbone, probably the bedrock that so much of what we believe, when we talk about the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, when we talk about the blessed hope, which means we believe we're not looking for the Antichrist or the beast, we're looking for Jesus Christ to come and take us to his presence. How do we know that? Well, that's based on Daniel chapter 9. And if you want to be turning there with me, I'd like to share with you Daniel 9. God's map for the future. Daniel 9 records perhaps the most amazing prophetic passage in all the Bible. It is the backbone of God's prophetic roadmap. Who would ever dream of predicting an event that would occur 500 years into the future and naming the very day on which it would occur? Well, you're going to see this morning one man did do that. His name was Daniel. His prediction was that there was a specific day that he named on which Jesus Christ would ride into Jerusalem. It just happens next Sunday is the day we celebrate that day. It's called Palm Sunday. And Daniel, through studying the Bible and through listening to what God said, predicted to the day when Jesus Christ would come in triumphantly on Palm Sunday. What a blessing to know that God's word is so precise. And when Daniel the prophet knelt down in prayer after his Bible study, his prayers received an incredible answer. God dispatched Gabriel the angel to tell Daniel that Jesus Christ would enter Jerusalem as king exactly 483 years into the future from an event that he prophesied. Well, that amazing detail. And the prophecy is that God told him the very day of Christ's entry. This morning, the book you hold in your hands contains details of events that will happen from today all the way into a thousand and seven years into the future and beyond. The details are exact and they're so accurate to the day that I'd like to demonstrate that for you. Look at Daniel 9 and verse 2 because I want to show you Daniel as he studied the Bible and how he understood God's word. And it says in Daniel 9, 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understand by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So we know that Daniel was reading Jeremiah. And what was he reading? Well, I put it up here for you. He was reading one verse, Jeremiah 29 and verse 4. And it, it caught his attention because it was talking about him. And it said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, Daniel was among them, 
whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that's where Daniel was. Well, he kept reading. And in verse 10, it says this. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I'll visit you. I'll perform my good word toward you, and I will cause you to return to this place. So when Daniel was studying the Bible, his study led him to see God's plan. And what was his reaction? Well, look down in your Bibles in Daniel 9. Look at verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer. Now, this is a side issue, but I want to share something with you. When you study the Bible and when you see prophetic events, it always drove the biblical writers, the prophets, the, the men and women of God, the apostles, it always drove them to prayer, not to apathy, not to pulling back and saying, oh, God's going to work out his work. In fact, one of the most profound things I ever read was reading this week what John Calvin wrote about this chapter, chapter 9. In fact, you know, most people think John Calvin, Calvinist, they think, you know, pretty dry old fella. You know what he said? He said, this chapter, chapter 9 of Daniel, drives me not to pull back and to say, whatever God wants to do, he'll do. But he said, it drives me to pray, thy kingdom come, O Lord. I hope it does the same to you this morning. Well, Daniel, he prayed. He prayed, God, your will be done. Your will be done in my life. Your will be done. And show me how your plan laid out in this book, all the way to the end of the world, should impact me to prayer. Well, basically, what Daniel saw was a prophetic roadmap. And what he saw last week uh, was built on Ezekiel, and we saw that last week, those of you that came through the winter blizzard. We looked at the prophetic overview of Russia's hatred and animosity toward God's people and their marching on the promised land on Israel and attacking them and being utterly defeated. This week, we're looking at the sequence. How do you know when this is going to happen? And we find in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, God has laid down a prophetic roadmap. Now you see at the bottom there, uh, the scene, the sequence, the Savior, all biblical prophecy, if it is biblically presented, should always focus us right back toward the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Revelation 19.10 that the spirit of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. And all prophecy should not cause us to fear getting marked or fear getting herded into prison camps or, or having to hole up out in the mountains and endure the tribulation and do all that. All prophecy should cause us not to fear but to worship and worship Jesus Christ. Well, specifically, Daniel's 70 weeks. How do we know the rapture and then the tribulation are next in God's prophetic plan. Is it because Hal Lindsey wrote a, a book that sold 25 million copies? Is that how we know? Is it because uh, some of these glib uh, speakers can, can weave in current events into their messages? Is that what we're hoping for? No. God left an incredible roadmap for us not to lose our way. In the scriptures, there are two types of prophetic teachings. Number one, panoramas, which show great stretches of time going into the future. Secondly, detailed descriptions of some of those events. In light of those two types of, of prophetic passages, we need to look at this most amazing one, which is Daniel's 70 weeks. This amazing prophecy gives us a panorama of God's plan for the Jews. And what it gives us is a prophetic Roadmap, a map that tells us this comes from the, the Hebrew prophet Daniel as he wrote in chapter 9. If you want to look down at verses 24 to 27, in a moment we are going to read those, but I want you to follow along because what Daniel tells us is 
that he gives us 70 weeks of highlights. You say, wait, 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 what's this 70 week? Well, we'll cover that. Because a Jewish year, a prophetic year, is always 360 days. They operate in, in number seven. We operate in decades. They operate in heptads, they're called. They're seven-year periods. Do you remember? They had seven days in their work week. They worked six and rested the seventh, the Sabbath day. And then they had seven years. They worked six. They rested the seventh. Then they had seven sets of seven years. And they rested not only the 49th, but the Jubilee year, the 50th year. And that's the whole setup of the Jewish calendar. And if you notice that, even when Daniel is talking about the future, he talks about 1,260 days. And he calls that three and a half years. If you know anything about math, three and a half times 365 and a quarter does not make 1,260. They talked in 360, 12, 30-day lunar month years. That's what we're going to see. Well, what are the highlights of what we're going to read? Number one, this passage, 24 to 27, tell us that Christ's death as a sacrifice for sin is going to be something in the future to Daniel. Bring in righteousness as Christ establishes the kingdom. We'll see each of these in the text itself. And it talks about the rebuilt millennial temple. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel spends about one-fifth of his book, Ezekiel, starting in chapter 40 all the way through 48, to describe a future temple that's going to be in Jerusalem. A temple that is so big and a temple that is so amazing that it says during the millennium all the world is going to be coming through this temple. It's very interesting. You say, what if they don't want to come through the temple? Well, God's going to make that kind of easy choice to make. God is in control. You know, he's sitting at the, at the uh, throne of the universe. And if you won't come to his temple in the millennium, it says it won't rain where you live. Isn't that interesting to think about? You've got your crops all planted and you decide you're too busy farming to go and make the trek to Jerusalem during the millennium, won't be you. We won't be able to be there living. Those will be descendants of those who survived the tribulation. But you say, I don't have time this year. And so it rains all the way around your fields, and yours turns into the Sahara. Guess what? Next year, you go to the temple because God is in control. There's going to be a rebuilt millennial temple. There's many chapters about that. Well. What are the highlights of the first 69 weeks? God divides them into two pieces. He said there's going to be a command to come, that will come to rebuild Jerusalem. If you pull out the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know exactly when that happened. That's a historic date. That's a date when the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire by the name of Artaxerxes decreed through Nehemiah that they could go and not only rebuild their temple, which they'd already gotten permission, not only to, to get all the material for the temple, but he decreed that they could set up a city and wall it in and put a moat around it and put gates on it and that they could have an independent entity of Jews living in Jerusalem. That is the decree, a great moment in history. It was the first day of the Jewish month of Nisan of 445. Secondly, the first coming of the Messiah. It says that Jesus Christ will come. We'll see that. Next, it says that Jesus will be cut off. That's another way of saying crucified, but in Jewish terminology, cut off is when a man died before he was married and before he had children. And the horrible thing is to get cut off. What that meant is your family would not go forward, your name would not go forward. And it says that Jesus would be cut off, that he would die before he could have children, before he could be married. And so we know, of course, he didn't marry, uh, and also we know he didn't have anything but spiritual children, but it's a very apt term that he would be cut off, crucified, and finally, that the people of the prince, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, that's the Roman people, would come in and destroy Jerusalem. 
And that event, as you know, happened in A.D. 70. Well, then there's another section, and that's the, the last week, because it only talks about 69 weeks of history. There's a gap, uh, and it's a very, very interesting gap. And that last week has some events, too. Uh, we know that the gap has lasted 2,000 years. Daniel didn't know exactly how long it would last. We know that that means that, that something is going to happen uh, and the church age will end, and then the end time will happen, which is the Antichrist, and he is described very clearly. Uh, this is all recorded in Daniel chapter 9, and I'd like to, just to get it underlined in your mind, read it together with you. And we're going to try and read out loud uh, these verses, 24 to 27, and so that we can all say the same words. This is New King James, and if you want to uh, follow along on the screen, we can do that. Let's read in unison together. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Some pretty amazing words. Let's ask the Lord to open our hearts to understand them this morning. Father, our hearts are still welling up with the words of the wonderful special this morning, both of them, but especially I fell on my knees and cried glory. The spirit of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. Worship Jesus. You've told us that's why we have this book. Not to speculate about, not to argue about, not to find things we can disagree about, but that we might have hearts united in one supreme purpose. That we would worship you, you who are the coming prince, you who are the promised Messiah, you who are the substitute, the sacrifice, the lamb that was slain. How we thank you that you prophetically told Daniel the very day that you would march in, the very day that the children of Israel were picking their Passover lambs, the very day that they had to come and present them in the temple to show that they were spotless and unblemished was the day that the only perfect human that ever walked the pages of history, that ever walked the lands of this world, you, the divine God-man, presented yourself as 
the perfect lamb. You came to the city where redemption would occur, and you offered yourself. And you said if the people didn't recognize you, the very stones would cry out, because the whole universe was groaning for this moment when you would pay the price to get rid of sin and make an end of iniquity and finish the transgression. How I pray that this morning our hearts would be opened to how precise, how marvelous your word is. May we read it a little more eagerly. May we hold it a little more securely in our hearts. May we long for you even more and say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Fill us with a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, not of fear. We think about prophetic events and so many well-meaning Christians are living in fear. They're living in, in, in dread of what might happen. And you've said that's not what prophecy does. It comforts and consoles and strengthens our hearts. I pray you might do that this morning. And teach us what you want us to know. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to remind you of those first verses. And if you want to turn to uh, Daniel 9, verse 20. And if you are a note taker, I hope you'll take just a few notes. And I'm going to cruise through this opening part very quickly. Because what Daniel shows is the power of a word-filled life. I remember when Daniel studied the Bible, when he saw prophecy, when he understood all this, he was driven to prayer. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 9, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin. What's amazing is he saw what God was going to do. He saw God was going to take the children of Israel back to their land. And so instead of him uh, just saying, okay, God, do it, he said, I want to be a part of it. And that's what prophecy should do. It should make us want to be a part of God's plan. And so what he saw was that God's people had sinned, and so he confessed. And he interceded on behalf of his people, which is a good note for us. He was driven to prayer. That's what prophecy did to him. It drove him to prayer. And the first thing we see is that God hears his word-filled servant. He was praying. He was confessing, verse 20, and the sin of his people Israel. He was presenting his supplication before the Lord for the holy mountain of his God. And you know what? God heard him. And God sent an angel. We're going to see in a minute. And secondly, God responds to his word-filled servant. And, and what we should do, prayer should, should cause us to have a heart that, that says, God, thy will be done as it's perfectly done in heaven. May it be done on earth in my life. And I want to be your tool. Someone asked me this week, what about the prayer of faith? What is that? The prayer of faith is when God finds someone who is so in tune with them that God makes his will so clear to them that they don't have any doubt. They know that's going to occur. And they pray and they go forward and they accomplish great things. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro, not for us to demand and command and, and tell God what to do, but the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro to find someone whose heart on earth is so completely toward God that God hears and responds through that person's life. That's what happens with Daniel. God responds to his word-filled servant. Verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. You say, what's that? Well, almost 70 years before, Jerusalem had been destroyed. And every evening between 3 and 4, the evening sacrifice occurred while the temple was standing. It was the offering for sin. It was a, an offering that was regularly offered at between 3 and 4 p.m. And did you know 
that was something that Daniel never forgot. He remembered the substitutionary offering, which gave him the very opportunity to come before God. And so probably one of his three times a day prayer was between three and four. You say, boy, that's amazing. Why do you keep doing it? Well, the New Testament apostles did it too. Did you know that, that Peter was, came into the temple about the, the ninth hour, it says? Did you know that Jesus actually died at the ninth hour? Did you know everything in the Bible? This is a finely tuned, orchestrated tapestry, and God has put all of the threads together for a purpose. And the evening sacrifice was a substitutionary sacrifice where the people said, we can't approach you because of our sins, and so the priest would offer a sacrifice to God. That's the old covenant. Jesus came and fulfilled that by being the evening sacrifice once and for all for sin, the ninth hour on the cross. That's the time he died. Do you remember? that he died and, and it became dark those last three hours and at the end from noon to three at the end of those three hours on the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said it is finished Acts 3 that's when the apostles came in Acts 10 that's when they're praying and right here that's when Daniel was praying God responded to his word filled servant God touches his word filled servant look at verse 22 he informed me he talked with me and said Daniel I've come now to give you skill to understand he says, your, your God hears. He's responding. He's going to touch you. He's going to give you understanding. If you ever want to study something interesting in this book, seven times the Almighty God touches Daniel. He touches him with strength, with skill. He gives him insight. He gives him power. He gives him what he needs. And right here is one of those seven times that God Almighty touches him. Well, verse 23 says, God also loved his word-filled servant. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Wow. God says, I'm looking for someone who's full of my word. Someone I can show, I hear, I respond, I'll touch, and I want them to know I love them. You know, if, if you aren't into prophecy, you ought to be into having a word-filled life. There's great power in having a life that's full of the Word of God. A Word-filled life experiences the fact that God hears you and me because we come to Him on the basis of His Word, that God will respond to us as we pray, that God will touch our lives with what we need. And, and when I prayed this morning before uh, we went into this, I earnestly believe, as you also do, that if we ask that God will respond and will touch us with understanding that we might know Him and that He will reveal to us that He loves us. Well... What's the next part of, of Daniel's uh, revelation from God? Look at verse 24. The first thing we see is that there's a great confidence if you are a word-filled servant of God. And verse 24 says that God has decreed the future. Very interesting word. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined. There are actually people that don't think that God is sovereign. They don't think that God is omnipotent. They don't think that God is omniscient. They don't think that God inhabits all of time and is above time. They actually don't know that God has decreed the future, and it shall not deviate from his decrees. Why did God tell us that? Well, so we should listen to him. If God has decreed the future, verse 24 says, listen to him. Don't be afraid of the future. Be confident. And that's the confidence of a word-filled life. We know God has decreed the future. He has determined irrevocably the future. So we should listen to him. And 70 weeks are determined. And he said that's critical for you to know. Verse 25 tells us that God has made known his will so we should follow him. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand 
He said, I want you to know, I want you to understand this so you can follow my plan. I want you to be in step with my plan. I want you to be in step with my spirit as he unfolds the perfect will of God. And so Daniel listened and he followed. And then the last two verses tell us that God has spoken to us so we should trust him. Verses 26 and 27, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. And then it talks about this evil prince coming who is an abomination. And you know, this passage is so important that Jesus Christ quotes verse 27. In Matthew 24, 15, he says, When you see the abomination that brings desolation that Daniel the prophet spoken of, had spoken of, standing in the temple. Well, you know what? That temple that Jesus pointed at was destroyed. And no abomination that causes desolation stood there. It's a future temple he's talking about, after Christ was cut off. And so because of that, we should trust him that the future is in his hand. Well, why does, why does Daniel make these divisions? And, and I want to show you what he did. Uh, in fact, let's move along here. He divides this whole period into three parts. And if you look at it, it says in verse 24 in your Bible, 70 weeks are determined to finish to do all this. Know therefore, verse 25, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there shall be, look right in the middle of verse 25, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and it tells what's going to happen. And after the 62 weeks and seven weeks, Messiah will be cut off. So there's three distinct periods. And those periods are, number one, during the first seven weeks, which are seven heptads, seven uh, shabuim is the Hebrew word, which means seven sevens. And seven times seven is 49, if you learned your multiplication tables in the fourth grade, like we all should have. And the city of Jerusalem in those 49 years would be rebuilt, worship reestablished, and do you know what else happened? Malachi finished the last book of the Old Testament, and the canon was closed. Those first 49 years are critical years. Then another 434 years would pass, and those are the silent years, and those are the years that, that a lot goes on. But what is primarily happening is after 62 more weeks, Messiah would come to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world. And that's what it's all about. In, in uh, uh, verse uh, 26, it says, After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He gives himself for us. And then, verses 27, uh, uh, the end of 26 and 27, talk about the prince. This bad guy makes an agreement with the Jews for one week. That's where, someone asked me a couple weeks ago, they said, how do we know the tribulation is seven years? It never says that. It says three and a half years, and it says 42 months and all that. I said, because Daniel was told that God has a seven-year period of time yet future for the Jews. And that's what this whole 70-week plan map is all about, about that future time. Well, let's have a little panorama, and I'm going to do this really quickly, uh, a panoramic view of God's plan. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people in the holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Basically, God says that there are three things. He's going to have a sacrifice for sin. That's the cross. He's going to seal up visions. That means he's going to consummate his revelation. And then he is going to consecrate a sanctuary, a millennial temple. The idiom of week of years was common to Israel. They had the Sabbath of the land, which the land would lie without being planted every seventh year. And their failure to obey these laws led God to send them off into captivity. And Daniel had read, and we saw this at the beginning, 
it said in Jeremiah 25, 4 and 10, that 70 years were appointed. When Daniel read 70 years, what did he think of? Did he think it meant some mysterious, unknowable thing? Or did he think he literally was dealing with 70 years? Well, he went out and looked at his watch and said, Wow, I've been in, in, in Babylon almost 70 years. And he thought, God is going to precisely fulfill his will just as he promised. So he got on his knees and said, God, you said you're going to take your people back in 70 literal years. Did you know that that was his Bible study? And so Gabriel comes and says, hey, you did so well understanding those 70 years. I have 490 more years in Israel's future. That's the panorama. And, and when Jesus said that... that or when Gabriel said that the Messiah would present himself as king, there is one specific day that Jesus arranged. And the focus of, of this passage, and what I want you to see uh, in verse 24 is why so many Christians get all mixed up. They think this has to do with the church. In fact, I have, I have hundreds of books, thousands of books actually, and I pull down all the ones in this passage. And I enjoy sometimes reading people that, that I don't agree with to try and understand where they're coming from. And you know what I saw the common thread is in all the people that don't understand this? They think it has to do with the church. And they're trying to figure out what 490 means in the church. Does it mean 490 blessings? Are there 490 great churches? Are there 70 times 7? Seven? 7 is completion and 70 is big completion. Are we going to have big blessings? They can't figure it out because they don't start with the premise Daniel started with. Literal years, 70. So Gabriel says 490 more literal years are coming. But what was he targeting? Well, let's look at that as we look at the, the next part. God has a 69-week plan first. A very specific prediction occurs in verse 25. Look at Daniel 9:25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street will be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. So from the, the, the permission of Nehemiah to rebuild the wall, you all remember the book of Nehemiah, from, from the permission of Nehemiah from Artaxerxes to build the wall, if you could shoot out 483 years into the future, something is going to happen, God was telling him. I have a 69-week game plan. Now, it'll take seven weeks, 49 years, for you to build this wall, get the city going, and for God to finish his revelation of the canon in the Old Testament. But he says 434 years after that event, something big is going to happen. And basically, because the Jews and the Babylonian calendars use 360-day years, we can actually multiply this. And, and God gives a prophetic bullseye. What he says is, if you will look at the day that the decree is signed, and it was such a big decree, even the Encyclopedia Britannica records this event, a non-biblical source. It says it happened on the first day of the Jewish month called Nisan in the year 445 B.C. And so God says, if you know when it was signed, and if you can multiply out 483 years of days, you will know that there's going to be a big event happening in the future, 483 years from that date. And so that's a bullseye. It's when the Messiah the Prince or Messiah the King would appear. What event took place? Christ Jesus entered as king into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, A.D. 30, precisely on the day that Daniel predicted in his prophecy it would occur. 
You say, well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus meticulously arranged it. On a particular day, he rode in the city of Jerusalem. He rode on a donkey. He deliberately fulfilled a prophecy that Zechariah had written. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation. He is lowly. He is riding upon an ass, upon a colt, upon the foal of an ass. What was that? All the way through Christ's ministry, they tried to make him king. He multiplied the bread. They tried to make him king by force. He would heal people. They say, wow, what an army. You get killed, he'll raise you from the dead. You don't even have to take food with you. He just takes a, a, one loaf and feeds everybody. We can conquer the world. He should be our king. And what did he do? He always ran away and retreated into the wilderness and walked across the water to get away from him. He says, you're not going to make me king until the day I choose. And the day he chose was the bullseye, the crosshairs of Daniel's prophecy to the very day it occurred. Wherever, or if we easily miss the significance of what's going on, the Pharisees uh, will come to our rescue. They felt that when Jesus, uh, in Luke 19, was letting this overzealous crowd say, Hosanna, King of the Jews, they said he was blaspheming because they understood what the people were saying. The people were saying, this is the promised Messiah our king. And those Pharisees knew that Jesus was claiming to be the king. In fact, it says in Luke 19.39, Jesus endorsed all this uh, uh, Palm Sunday festivity. He says, I tell you, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Verse 40. And this is the only occasion when Jesus presented himself as king. And it occurred on Palm Sunday in AD 30. Well, we can trust the divine precision of prophecy. When we examine the period between the 1st of Nisan, which is mid-March of 445 B.C., to the 10th of Nisan, which is early April of 30 A.D., and correct it for leap years, we discover there is exactly 173,880 days between those two. How could anyone have contrived such detailed prediction and documented it 500 years before it happened, except God? Basically, the prophetic bullseye is this. If you take 69 weeks of years, multiply it times 7, that's the weeks of years, that's 360 days, you get 173,880 days. If you take the day that Nehemiah made his decree, or received it from Artaxerxes, the first of Nisan, 445 B.C., subtract out the days from Palm Sunday, A.D. 30, you get exactly 173,880 days. What he said is that we are seeing God fulfill his prophetic roadmap. And if God fulfilled that literally to the day, he's going to fulfill the rest precisely and literally as he promised. That's why uh, if the house burns down or if the, if, if the car crashes, the one thing you ought to take with you is this book. This gives you the very mind of God. This gives you God's roadmap for how not only the future is going to play out, how he wants us to live in between. Well, we're living in the interval. We're living in the gap. We're living between these two events because what happens is there's a gap. Look at verse 25 and verse 27 back in Daniel 9. Know therefore and understand that from this going forth of the command to Nehemiah to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah is presented as prince, that's Palm Sunday, there will be these 69 weeks. In this time, the streets will be built and the wall in troublesome times. And if you know anything about the intertestamental history, it was very troublesome. 
Uh, everybody fought over Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed multiple times in that period of time. The temple always survived, but everything else was wiped out, and the people were hacked and butchered and dragged off, and sometimes they'd win and sometimes they'd lose, and the Persians got them, and then the Greeks got them, and then the Seleucids got them, and everybody was getting them. But it was troublesome times, just like it says there in verse 25. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. But look at this. And the people of the prince who is to come. That's interesting. The people of the prince who is to come. Who attacked and destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans. Where do we get the, the concept of a revived Roman Empire? Because this is, a, is very, very amazing what it says. The people of the prince who is to come. So what it says is a group of people are going to attack that are related to someone who is going to be the future prince that's going to be attacking and, and dealing with the Jews. So that's the head of the revived Roman Empire. That's the, we call him the beast, or the, the one who, who brings desolation, or the man of lawlessness, or you best know him as the Antichrist. The Antichrist people are going to destroy Jerusalem. And what event is that? That's the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And it says, the end shall be with a flood. Uh-huh, a million people are butchered in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And till the end, war and desolations are determined. What's going on right now? Same thing. If it's not uh, the Syrians that are threatening the Israelites, it's the Iranians. And if it's not the Iranians, it's the Iraqis. And if it's not the Iraqis, it's somebody else. It's the Libyans or the Sudanese or somebody. They're all seeking to destroy this place and that's what God said but then so between Christ cutting off in verse 26 and verse 27 there's another division and that division is where we are and what we are is we're between that event we are in this gap this interval and then God says I have seven horrible years ahead and that's right here in verse 27 then he this person the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with the many for one week there's the last seven years. Now, those of you that wonder where the seven-year tribulation comes from, it comes right out of the Bible. It comes out of Daniel 9:27. When you wonder why we think it's seven years long, it's because it's there. When you wonder why we don't believe we're going to be there is because, very clearly, if you look back at verse 24, it says, these 70 weeks are determined for your people. What was Daniel? A Jew. And for your city. What was Daniel's city? Jerusalem. Are you Jews this morning? Are we a couple, but not very many of us. We are Gentiles. Are we, is our city Jerusalem? No, we have a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. So the 70 weeks are not for us. They're not for the church. They are for the Jews. They're not for the redeemed Jews. They will be also taken out of this world at the rapture. They are for the unbelieving Jews who God deals with in the seven years, and we're going to cover that in the future. Uh, when we go through this. Well, what's the bottom line? There are seven years of history left for Israel to complete God's program. The specifics of those seven years are going to be in our upcoming Sunday night series as we go through the approaching hoofbeats of the tribulation hour, the horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, what's going to happen? Demonic creatures will ravage the earth. Half of the world's population will be murdered. Earth will become a wasteland. Mankind will fiercely fight against God and try one last time to destroy Christ. And at the moment, they're closest to destroying his people, he returns. Well, what does all this mean to us? I think it means to us what it meant to Daniel. Number one, we should know God hears us when we're full of his word. Verse 20. Have you decided you're going to be full of God's word? Have you decided, I mean, it's already March, 
Are you going to get in this book every day of this year? Not just personally, but are you going to read it to your family men? Are you going to read it to your children, to your wife? Are you going to put God into your, your daily life? You know, most families in America don't even eat meals hardly at all together anymore. They're on the go so much. How to change your life so that you have at least one meal together. And if you are a godly man, you ought to say, God hears his word-filled servants. I want to read the Bible to you. You know, every, every day, last night we read another chapter. It was just like clockwork. It, you can, if you just read the Bible systematically, God will speak to every point in your life. Because he speaks through his word. God says, I will respond to you. Do you want to have a life of power? Do you want to have a life that, that, that shows the power of God in your community? God responds to you. If you're full of his word, you have to be in it. God says, I'll touch your life. If you will be full of my word, I will touch your life with strength, with boldness, with confidence. You know, we were just out with, with a couple, and, and we were praying that we'd be able to witness. And it was so interesting that, that I think the waiter stood at our table for a half an hour. I mean, you ask the Lord, he'll give you people. They'll stand there. They're just waiting for you to talk to them and tell them the good news. And God loves us. We are beloved as Daniel was because we're in Christ. And what should we do? Well, we should be very confident about the future. God has decreed the future. Listen to him. Don't fear. And any prophetic teaching that leads people to, to start caving in and living in fear is not biblical teaching. We are to have power and love and a sound mind. And great peace have they which love thy law. Nothing offends them. And in quietness and confidence should be our strength. Don't let prophetic news of any type make you cower in fear. No, God has decreed the future. We should listen to him. God has made known his will. We should follow him. God has laid down specifically how we're to operate when the world gets hostile against us. I don't know if you've been reading what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're burning churches and Christians in Indonesia. They are killing and butchering people in Egypt, in the Sudan. They, in Nigeria, they just went into the Christian churches and, and with machetes just hacked the people to death. That's going on all over the world. How are we supposed to live? God says, follow me. He said, it's never changed. He's all that live godly in Christ Jesus suffer. And finally, God has spoken to us, and we should trust him. And let's do that as we bow before him right now in prayer. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. May we listen to you. That means get in this book and read it. May we follow you. That means living a life of obedience. May we trust you. That means bringing every petition to you in prayer and saying, not my will. Lord, thy will be done. I pray this morning we would think of Daniel about the time of the evening sacrifice on his face, looking toward Jerusalem where the sacrifices had been offered, with his hands outstretched, offering himself as a living sacrifice. I can hear the Apostle Paul saying, I beseech you, Christians, because of God's mercy in saving you, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices. This morning, may prophetic truth cause all of us to renew our commitment to be living sacrifices, to listen to you, to say, I'm not going to let a day go by without being in your word, to trust you, I'm not going to live in fear, to follow you, to say, I'm not here for any other purpose than to accomplish God's will on this planet. God, what do you want me to do? I'll know your word, I'll obey your word, I'm going to search it, I'm going to do what it says. That's our heart's desire. I pray that you would strengthen us to that end. And this morning, if anyone's here who hasn't even heard the voice of Jesus yet, 
They have never asked the perfect Lamb of God who died in their place to take away their sins. May they know that your invitation, O oh God, is always open and that they would hear and respond to your Spirit's prompting and that you would draw them to the Savior so that you might rejoice and we with you over another one of yours who has come to salvation. In your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.